0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren.
1: Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood-paneling electric fireplace and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And ahoy to those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America and, of course, to those who catch the show on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. For as long as I can remember, Rosemary Ellen Guiley was a part of this program. Now, my show changed homes, different radio stations here in Toronto, up and down the dial, and it even changed names, but Rosemary was always part of the show. The last ten years, she joined me the second Sunday every month to discuss all things paranormal, supernatural, and unexplained. She was always professional and prepared and gracious and kind, and she was the same person off the air as she was on the air. So genuine. Rosemary passed away in July in Seattle, her hometown. So I thought the best way to pay tribute to her was to let you hear her at her best. Here she is back in May of this year. This was the last time we spoke with each other on the radio. A few weeks after this interview, she emailed to say she couldn't continue with the program because she wasn't feeling well. And then, a few weeks after that, she was gone. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a best-selling author, researcher, and investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields. She joins us the second Sunday of every month, and she's here for the hour to add to her list of must-see paranormal locations across the United States and to talk Bigfoot. She's compiled and edited a collection of articles about Bigfoot from legendary Fate magazine. It's called Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. Hey, Rosemary, how are you?
2: Well, I'm doing well, Richard. Uh, It's been a busy spring, and I just launched a brand new book, Planet Bigfoot, which we'll be talking about tonight. Very excited about that.
1: Me too. But we have some unfinished business before we get to Planet Bigfoot. Last month, you were kind enough uh, to put together uh, a paranormal road trip, the top six haunted locations across the continental United States. And last month, we talked about Salem of course Salem Massachusetts we talked about the Lemp Mansion and we talked about uh, Gettysburg uh so next up on the uh, the docket is Waverly Hills tell us about Waverly
2: Hills It's in Louisville, Kentucky, and definitely if you're in the vicinity, you should not pass up an opportunity to go because it is incredibly haunted. I have investigated at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium five times, and I have never been disappointed. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky was uh, badly hit by a tuberculosis epidemic in the late 19th and early 20th century, And to handle the thousands of victims, uh, officials wanted to get the sick people out of the city area, they built this large sanatorium up on top of a hill outside of the city, and uh, it was known as Waverly Hills. And uh, thousands of people were treated there, most of whom sadly died, because uh, they had no antibiotics back then. And about all that could be done for people was rest and nutrition and sometimes really weird procedures. They had strange operations back then that were more harmful than helpful. For example, one was uh, ripping open the chest cavity and pulling the lungs out a little bit to see if they could breathe more easily.
1: Oh, good Lord.
2: But uh, at any rate, you can imagine that the sanatorium was the scene of tremendous suffering for a good number of years. And, in fact, uh, at the height of the epidemic, people were dying at such uh, a high rate that um, officials didn't want bodies stacking up and and, uh, hearses coming and going uh, all the time, uh, which would be upsetting to patients and visitors. So they constructed a tunnel through the hill and uh, put a little kind of railroad track on it and, and put the bodies in these little cars uh, and shot them down the body chute, which is now called the death tunnel, uh, to a backside of the sanatorium where the hearses could come and collect them. Um, well, the epidemic finally subsided um, with the advent of antibiotics in the 1930s, and uh, eventually the sanatorium was closed, and it became a geriatric center, um, a place where there was horrible abuse of the elderly. That was shut down. Um, it passed into private ownership, this huge facility. Now, get the. I, I have to tell this history of the place because it's so colorful and it really ties into a lot of the hauntings Uh, this man wanted to tear down every single building and put up a shopping center and the world's largest statue of jesus
1: oh lord literally (laughs) oh lord
2: (laughs) and he was able to tear down all the buildings except the main one which was by then a historic site and protected he tried to get it condemned he let it go to ruin um, the city still would not condemn it. He finally uh, abandoned it, and it um, eventually passed on to other private ownership, and that's where it is today. So um, Waverly Hills has been restored a bit, but a lot of it is still in ruins in its original uh, condition, and uh, it is loaded with phenomena. Um, There are apparitions. A lot of it's residual haunting apparitions of patients, visitors, staff. Um, People have seen, like, doctors and nurses and orderlies uh, looking like they're still going about their business. People have heard uh, um, disembodied voices of patients crying for help. Um, There are phantom animals. Uh, two two deaths took place there. A nurse committed suicide on the fifth floor after she discovered she was pregnant, and another nurse threw herself out the window of the fifth floor. And uh, there are children ghosts, uh, adult ghosts, um, and if you go and investigate, uh, and there are there are public ghost tours organized all the time for Waverly, so you can join one. Um, you you are likely to have a very interesting evening. Now, one of the things that Waverly Hills is especially famous for is shadow people. Uh, These are dark, kind of unknown entities that lurk around heavily haunted or really polluted places, that is, places where there's been a lot of unhappiness and tragedy. And the first time I went to Waverly and saw shadow people going... Uh, up and down these long corridors and in and out of doorways, I was shocked. I was absolutely riveted. Um, the staff has many stories to tell about these figures uh, coming very close to people. Uh, when they clip at night, somebody has to go through the whole building by themselves and make sure that nobody's there and uh, the shadow people will follow them. People have gotten a lot of EVPs, photographic evidence, um, one of the more interesting experiences I had there was um, there is a morgue, of course, um, and uh, some of the original body racks in the morgue. And a staff person told me that uh, if a person laid in one of the body racks and was pushed in, uh, you would have some interesting experiences. So I did that.
0: Oh, man.
1: You're, you're brave. I you know. are brave.
2: <laughs> I, I think I was crazy. Uh, but at any rate... Um, Almost immediately, I was overwhelmed with the sensation of patients who were still there. Like, I, I think there are a lot of earthbound still at Waverly. Right, uh, People right. who died tragic deaths and didn't or couldn't move on. And they were asking for help. And I could see psychically out in front of me this line of people just going off down the corridor, people who wanted help, please help me, please help me. And uh, when, when I got pulled out, I was with a group at that time, and we immediately did a prayer circle. Um, and we said, you know, it was just too overwhelming to deal with each one individually, but uh, we, we did do prayers for all of those who are still at Waverly and are seeking uh, peace and uh, getting to the light. Uh, so uh, Waverly has had some restoration done to it, and some people feel that that's disturbed some of the hauntings. Sometimes restoration does that. But there's still plenty there. It's a five-story building. Um, it's got huge, long corridors. And most of these are open air because uh, it was the philosophy that um, patients need to be wheeled out into the fresh air And so a lot of the activity uh, that people see with the apparitions and the shadow people are up and down these long corridors with apparitions and the uh, black shapes moving back and forth across the hallways.
1: Is it better to go at night or during the day?
2: Well, you can take a tour during the day, but if you really want the action, sign up for one of the nighttime tours. There are groups that will reserve it for their own private investigations. And then Waverly Hills also runs its, uh, its own uh, ghost uh, investigations as well. So do an overnight.
1: Wow. Waverly Hills. That sounds like a, a must stop on our paranormal road trip. Rosemary Ellen Giley with us. She joins us once a month and her website visionaryliving.com visionaryliving.com next on the paranormal road trip uh is Winchester Mystery House Winchester Mystery House
2: and uh, this is a really bizarre place with a very strange history and it's also full of residual um uh, hauntings and phantoms as well and it's tied to the Winchester rifle company and family. Um, The house was owned by Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of William Winchester. He was the man who invented the repeating rifle that was used during the Civil War. And uh, they were living in New Haven, Connecticut, had a fine life, lots of money, uh, and William and their little baby daughter, Annie, took ill with tuberculosis and died. And of course, Sarah was heartbroken. She had always believed in the occult, so she started turning to mediums to see if someone could contact William for her, and finally she found one who did. And what William told her was that um, all uh, all of the spirits of the people who had been killed by the Winchester rifle were angry, and that they had taken their revenge on William and Annie, and Sarah would be cursed, too, unless she made amends. And uh, he said, you have to uh, move um, out of New Haven and go west and um, start building a house that never ends. Uh, now, this sounds like a very strange way to make amends, but that's exactly what Sarah did. She uh, sold the house, and she moved out to California, to the Bay Area, and she found uh, in the Santa Clara Valley a nice little um, eight-room house on 44 acres, plenty of room to expand. And she had inherited $20 million. Now, in the 1800s, that's a lot of bucks.
3: Right, right.
2: Uh, And she also had uh, a big stake in the uh, rifle company. So she commenced this endless construction, adding on to the house. And she had no master plan. Uh, She wanted it all Victorian, all the finest materials. And because she had no master plan, the house started looking rather crazy. Uh, There were rooms that tilted at odd angles, elevators that went nowhere, staircases that went nowhere, doors that opened onto walls, um, and all kinds of secret rooms and maze-like passageways through this house. So... Uh, this went on throughout her entire life until she died. And she claims never to have been troubled uh, by the spirits. Uh, she had a, uh, a secret room called the Blue Seance Room. And she was the only one who was permitted to enter this room. And it was said that um, many nights at midnight she would go into the seance room and summon uh, the spirits uh, of the dead who were around her by tolling a bell and conduct a seance with them. She also held dinner parties for them. She was obsessed by the number 13. So a lot of things in the house had to have 13 uh, window panes, 13 wall sconces, 13 this or that. So she had 13 seatings at her dinner party. And it was for her and 12 ghosts. Uh, And uh, people... Said, uh, people who lived in the vicinity said they could hear odd noises coming from the house late at night, uh, organ music when there was no organ in the house, um, and things like that. She would not allow people to visit. Teddy Roosevelt wanted to come and visit, and she turned him away saying the house was not open. So uh, this construction went on then until she died at age 8two that was in 1922 and then it stopped. Now by then um, she ha- oh, and she had extensive gardens as well. Uh, by then she had uh, 160 rooms added oh, to this my. house, 47 fireplaces, 2,000 doors, 40 staircases, and all of these little uh, secret rooms that uh, people had to discover later. So the house today is a historic place, as you can imagine. Uh, It's filled mostly with residual phenomena. That is, uh, there was a piano in the house. People can hear phantom piano music, footsteps. People see apparitions. Uh, To my knowledge, there aren't any seances that are conducted there anymore. Uh, for a long time, the governing body of the Winchester House would not allow paranormal investigators to come in, but they have in recent years, and uh, people have collected interesting evidence, photographic and, and audio evidence. Uh, I've never investigated there. I visited there during the day, and there is a very strange vibe to this place, as you can imagine. Uh, here's a woman who is saturated Uh, in the spirit world she literally lived with one foot in the spirit world and uh, keeping the spirit world appeased and at bay was her her whole focus in life Uh, and you can feel that in the house so uh, that also is definitely worth a visit
1: the winchester mystery house and that's in uh, in california
2: Santa Clara Valley.
1: Santa Clara Valley. All right. So now we're going to head up the West Coast to the Seattle Underground.
2: Well, this is near and dear to my heart because Seattle is where I grew up, and I consider it my hometown. And a lot of people don't realize that Seattle actually has an underground city, and it is very haunted. Now, when Seattle was founded, um, it was uh, it's it's on Puget Sound. And it was located on a tidal flat, a really bad location. And when the high tides would come in, and especially if there had been a lot of rain, a lot of the downtown streets would flood with water and mud. And, in fact, it was said that um, the water could be so deep it could swallow up small children and dogs. Uh, hardly a way to to run uh, a prosperous city, but that's, that's the way Seattle operated. And... Then in 1889, there was a great fire that destroyed much of the downtown, and so the city officials took this as an opportunity to get rid of this tidal water problem, and they literally raised the street level by eight feet. They uh, erected uh, pylons, log pylons, and a wall around a 25-block area, and literally rebuilt a new street level up over the old buildings, uh, which then went into decay. And that's Seattle's underground, which can be accessed through uh, a number of of locations. Now, some of it's off-limits because it's quite hazardous and not safe, but there are uh, ghost tours that can be taken at night, uh, through these haunted parts of the underground. And they are, they're loaded with residual phenomena and ghosts. Some of the ghosts are interactive. Uh, for example, there's a, uh, still a, a bank with its old bank vault door, and there's a bank teller that uh, seems to like to pull people's jackets and hair. Um, people have heard disembodied voices. There are brothels down there, barber shops, retail shops. Uh, all all the kinds of things that you could imagine would be in a city, Right, ruins of them are still down there, the original wallpaper. And you can trace your way through a maze through uh, the underground and see some of these original locations. Uh, people have captured all kinds of evidence, photographic and EVP down there. Um, my favorite ghost tour is run by uh, Spooked in Seattle. Uh, there's another one called Spidel, uh Bill Spidel Tours as well that's also very popular. And uh, Seattle is uh, uh, definitely a city worth visiting. It's quite a tourist destination. This is down in the, it's called uh, the old Pioneer uh, Square area, uh, which um, uh, for a long time was a very run-down area full of derelicts, and now it's gone through kind of a renovation, but it's in the oldest part of the city, and uh, a lot of people don't realize that when they're walking around on the sidewalks downtown, they're literally walking over the building graves of the old town.
1: Wow. Uh, and how many city blocks would it be uh, underground still, that are still sort of uh, you know, navigable?
2: Um, I'm not sure how many of, of the 25 square blocks that were uh, damaged by a fire. I'm not sure how many are accessible by the tour, by the tours, and there are different parts too. Like if you if you take different tours, you're you're not going to go to the same parts of the underground because they all have their own particular areas.
1: Right, right. Wow. Uh, that's, uh, that's something I've got to do. I've been to Seattle, but I didn't get down under, under the ground. Uh, now, we are going to take a, a time out. When we come back, uh, Rosemary, Fate Presents. You've got another uh, fantastic book that you've edited and compiled, and you've combed through uh, the many, many issues of Fate magazine that all relate to Bigfoot. Planet Bigfoot is next with Rosemary Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant.
1: We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, she has a brand new book out. It's called Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. So when did the first articles having to do with Bigfoot appear?
2: The earliest that I could find went back to the 1950s, and they were references mostly to abominable snowmen and yeti the whole North America Bigfoot phenomenon hadn't really broken open yet. Not that it didn't exist, it just hadn't broken open to public awareness. So the early articles dealt with, you know, are there really such things as abominable snowmen and uh, probing into the history of hairy wild men. Uh, you know, there's documentation going back centuries in Europe and in England about large, hairy wild men that could be found out in the wilderness. Some of the descriptions of them are kind of like Sasquatch, but then a lot of them just seem like, you know, hairy hominids, you know, human beings. But in, in the 1950s, that all changed. And in fact, uh, some of the fate writers actually pinpointed the birth of, of Bigfoot, or North American Bigfoot, um, uh, to uh, 1958 in California. Now this, this uh, occurred at um, a logging site in uh, California uh, and some huge footprints were found um, in the area and it um, spooked a lot of people, I mean a lot of the workers and since um, it was not unusual for uh, rookies to have jokes played on them, uh, some, some of it was just passed off to jokes, but these were like enormous human-like footprints that were far bigger than anything a person could make. And plaster casts were made of them. Uh, This lumber company was owned by a man named Ray Wallace, and he winds up being a very pivotal figure in the early development of Bigfoot awareness. Uh, So this hits the paper, and it becomes a media sensation. What's making these giant footprints? And so what starts coming to light then are stories from the Native Americans about Sasquatch, you know, these large, ape-like, intelligent beings that have been on the planet before us, and they're kind of our elders and looking after the planet. Interest starts. So from the 1960s then, fake coverage starts to pick up because uh, of the increase in attention. Now, the next big development that we have is the 1967 Patterson-Gimlin film. Right, Um, right. That was actually in the same area as Wallace's Lumber Camp. And uh, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin allegedly took Patterson, did, his friend Gimlin was with him, of a female Bigfoot striding through the woods. There is no other film that has been more examined and dissected, except for the Kennedy assassination Zapruder film.
3: Right, right.
2: It has been intensely scrutinized. Patterson was out on horseback. He was literally hunting Bigfoot. He needed money, and he's got his camera, and lo and behold, he lucks out and manages to catch this large ape-like creature. It was obviously female because it had breasts, a striding through the woods it's a very short clip it becomes a sensation and of course it's debunked it's upheld the film has been analyzed by animal experts anthropologists people who look at the gate you know could this possibly be a person in a big bulky costume could a person imitate this kind of gait and stride and the jury frankly is still out
1: and what do you think
2: I'm on the fence about it, Richard, and one of the things that puzzles me, now in some of the articles in this anthology, in Planet Bigfoot, there's a detailed examination of how this thing had to move and at what angle and behind and in front of what trees, and could this have really happened the way it looked. But one of the things that was pointed out was, while this creature is striding away from Patterson, While it is still walking, it turns and looks at him. And it has been pointed out by anthropologists that no animal will do this. Not even people do this, at least very often. If you are trying to get away from something, you keep your eyes ahead of you, and if you want to look back, you stop and look back. That kind of puzzles me. Why would that be the case here? Also the rest of the creature are covered in hair and uh anthropologists have pointed out that hominids female hominids do not have hairy breasts. So there were stories over the years, you know, people came forward and said, "Oh, it was me in a Bigfoot suit. I did it. The suit was made by a guy in Hollywood." Uh it was all a big hoax. All they wanted was money. Well, Patterson and Gimlin never really made a whole lot of money off this film and I don't like that argument anyway. That's one of the first things skeptics say is, oh, you're just in it for the money. Well, usually not, unless you're really trying to pull off some really clever hoax. But to this day, the camp is divided on whether or not this is genuine film, and nothing like it has ever been shot that comes close. We've had lots of photographs, lots of very short videos, usually of figures in the distance, very hard to make out, difficult to determine the size and the shape. To date, the best evidence we still have are eyewitness testimonies. Hair samples have been collected, inconclusive, uh, at best the analysis comes back no known primate or mammal. Doesn't mean it's Sasquatch, doesn't mean it's not. But the Patterson-Gimlin film which really ignited a lot of research then and uh, so we have quite a well-developed field today of sasquatch or bigfoot researchers some people prefer sasquatch some people prefer bigfoot trying to collect evidence there were accounts going back to colonial times of people seeing these creatures in the woods daniel boone called them yowies and he even claimed to have shot one there are other claims from colonial and frontier times of people shooting and killing these creatures but There's never been any evidence of a photograph or a body or or bones or anything, so we don't know how to take these stories. To date, no one has ever captured one. We don't have any conclusive remains. The interesting things about Sasquatch is that, and this is my opinion too, I don't think it's a flesh-and-blood creature. Uh, And here again, we have a divided camp among researchers where some people say, look, it's an earth species species, just out in the wilderness and wasn't very, very well known or discovered, but it's flesh and blood, earth, animal. And other people who say, no, it's an intelligent creature that lives in another realm and has the capability of interdimensionality and has a connection to UFOs. It is interesting that there are many cases of Bigfoot sightings that are also tied to UFO activity.
1: Yes, yes. There's a a great article in the book that you've compiled, Planet Bigfoot, by, of course, the great John Keel.
2: That's right. And then um, one of the leading proponents of that argument, Kewone Lapseritis, also talks about that, about the uh, ET connection and that the Sasquatch say that they are related to the star people and that they were seated here to help look after the planet. The Native Americans have many, many stories about these creatures. Some of them are described as hostile and aggressive, and some as benevolent and friendly. And I think a lot of the current evidence points to interdimensionality. We have so many cases of Bigfoot appearing and disappearing suddenly, tracks that start in the middle of nowhere and stop, like something got dropped from a helicopter and then picked up. Telepathic communication. People have encountered these creatures spontaneously and have had what they say is intelligent telepathic communication with them. Um, there are uh, um, researchers who have developed um the what I would call the rudiments of Sasquatch language.
1: Ah, um I did want I did want to I wanted to pick up on that actually because there's a interesting article from a uh, good friend Micah Hanks, who's just one of the, the sweetest human beings alive. And um I want to uh take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll talk about Uh, bigfoot language rosemary ellen guiley has edited and compiled a magnificent book it's called planet bigfoot fate presents planet bigfoot and we'll get to that discussion when we come back right here on the conspiracy show my name is richard serrat stay with us
2: message and data rates may apply individual results may vary
0: exclusions apply
1: but hey, I'm buying a huge flat screen TV so I can finally see it without my glasses.
3: Why not just get LASIK? At the LASIK Vision Institute? That's what I'm doing. Ah, uh,
1: my glasses and contacts are a pain. I'd love to finally
0: get rid of these, but who can afford LASIK? You can Better vision, better value. The LASIK Vision Institute. Make this the year you finally get LASIK. For a free consultation plus an extra 20% discount, text DO55 to 350350. You'll see for free if LASIK is right for you. That's DO55 to 350350. Warning, if you're drowning in debt you can't afford, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking that you have to pay it all back. Because you don't. Different views make great conversation. This is The
1: Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Fate presents Planet Bigfoot, edited and compiled by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Now, uh, just as a reminder, Rosemary. How far back does uh, Fate Magazine goes? Didn't it recently celebrate a big, big anniversary?
2: Um, yes, it did. Uh, Fate started in 1948. And so, uh, let's see, we've been around, what, a little over 60 years now. Uh, f- a few years ago, we had our 700th issue anniversary.
1: Uh, 70 years. Just past 70 years.
2: 70. Wow,
1: and we were talking about uh, Bigfoot language, and uh, Micah Hanks uh, has contributed a piece uh, to Fate Magazine uh, asking that very question. And so, what are the uh, what are the findings?
2: Uh, well, uh, individuals who've had encounters with these creatures now many of them, as I mentioned in the last segment, uh, talk about telepathic communication, but they also have heard oral communication, especially if they've been around more than one of these creatures. There was a famous case from the 20s, Albert Ostman, who uh, was uh, a minor and said he was uh, kidnapped by Bigfoot and carted off to uh, one of their, uh, their own encampments and that he heard a lot of oral communication uh, between them. And uh, he eventually was able to uh, to, to get away um, there was another researcher by the name of Burns um, who uh, studied sounds um, this was also going back to the 1920s uh, studied sounds and talked to um, Native Americans about uh, the Sasquatch and he came to the conclusion that um, they speak in what is referred to as something called the Douglas dialect and uh, it's uh, a reference to the Salish Indians uh, that live uh, out in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, they have different dialects, and uh, that the Sasquatch uh, dialect sounds very similar to uh, to one of their uh, speech patterns. Now, there's another researcher by the name of Ron Moorhead who has spent. Uh, oh, at least a couple decades now, uh, researching Sasquatch in the Sierra Nevadas.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And he has collected a lot of Bigfoot sounds. And he, he says that he has pieced together what he feels are at least the foundation of a Bigfoot language. Uh, no one has learned how to speak Sasquatch yet, however. But, it, you know, it makes sense. Uh, and I do believe that these these uh, these these are beings they're not animals or creatures or monsters they're beings and they are intelligent uh, they have their uh, own modes of communication uh, in many respects they're superior to us because they've mastered paraphysical phenomena that we can't do, there's no animal on earth that can disappear and reappear in an instant um, uh, and uh, bilocate Uh, Very quickly, people talk about that, that they encounter a a Bigfoot and one minute it's here and the next second it's uh, behind them or relocated uh, off to the side. Um, They are also purported to have healing capabilities uh, as well. People say they've been healed by Bigfoot. And this is evidence that gets harder and harder to ignore. Uh, and um, I, I think that researchers have to put it on the table. Whether, whether or not you still think that it's a f- flesh-and-blood creature, you have to consider all of this uh, eyewitness anecdotal evidence uh, from uh, many disparate sources uh, that confirms the same characteristics. We're not dealing with something uh, of this earth. I, I believe that Bigfoot lives in a parallel world to Earth um, most of the time and that it has the capability to come into our world. It seems like to forge around for uh, a lot of food on this side. Um, by and large, they prefer to avoid people because they consider human beings to be violent and hostile. Uh, some of them have acted out aggressively uh, toward human beings and uh, others not. They're more curious than anything else.
1: When we uh, come back, we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, Bigfoot sightings uh, elsewhere, aside from North America. For example, uh, Nick Redfern will check in with an article uh, in search of the British uh, Bigfoot. We'll do that when we come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. And the new book is Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. More of the conspiracy show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Mary Ellen Guiley, and uh, the book is Planet Bigfoot. Fate presents Planet Bigfoot. Why Planet Bigfoot?
2: Uh, because Bigfoot is everywhere. Uh, you know, in earlier times, like I mentioned, Fate's early coverage was on the abominable snowman. It was thought that, well, they're all over there in Eurasia, all these creatures. Uh, and then we start discovering that, uh, well, Bigfoot's in California. Bigfoot's in the Northwest. Uh, oh, guess what? It's in Eastern uh, America, too. It's in Canada. In fact, um, Bigfoot has been reported all over the world, including South America, and I have an article from Scott Corrales about that in Planet Bigfoot.
1: And uh, also the British Isles. Nick Redfern writes about this. Um, okay. So, hard to imagine you know, a, a, an 8-foot, 9-foot bipedal hairy creature Uh, in in merry old England, but there you go. What does Nick have to say about it?
2: There you go. The oldest account on record is 800 years old, and they called it a wild man, Um, and it was captured on the east coast of England, and it was described as naked uh, and uh, like a man, but covered with hair, had a long, shaggy beard, and... um, he, he would only eat raw food, um, and they, fi- they finally let him go. Um, they couldn't get anything out of him, you know, in terms of information. And uh, he eventually came back on his own free will and then escaped again and was never seen. Now, these sorts of hairy wild men have been reported throughout Europe as well. Um, but here we have an 800-year-old account uh, from England. And then there are accounts in the 19th century and England where uh, people out riding at night uh, came across um, these huge, uh, shaggy, man like things that looked like one was described as half man, half monkey, had large glowing eyes, um, uh, attacked a man on horseback, uh, and uh, he was able to fend it off with his whip. Uh, but he said the whip passed straight through its body. Now, that's an, another characteristic that uh, people report about Bigfoot today, is that bigfoot they've observed Bigfoot passing through solid matter, like going uh, literally into the sides of cliffs or passing through the walls of, of a house, for example. Uh, so these sorts of things have been reported uh, for hundreds of years in England, um, and now the current hot spot in England is an area called Cannock Chase, and I was just there this spring. Uh, I did not get to do a nighttime vigil uh, there, unfortunately. The Cannock Chase is uh, a heavily wooded area that's um, very, very haunted, and uh, Bigfoot and dog men have been seen there on uh, numerous occasions. Um, so that's the current hot spot in England. Uh, you know, why should England not have these if everybody else does?
1: I suppose, I suppose. <laughs> uh there's a case of a reporter, uh, who actually vanished. Was he, was this reporter trying to track Bigfoot or was he doing a, a story on Bigfoot? Tell me about this story by Charles Sasser. Um, yes, <clears throat>
2: um, yes. That concern, actually, I think it was uh, a woman who vanished. She was out in Arkansas, uh, and uh, she's 68 years old, and uh, she'd been out with her husband and uh, her stepson and fiancé, and they were just out walking in the woods. And um, after they'd been on the trail for a while, uh, Gloria, which was her name, she decided to Uh, go back to the lodge because uh, it was wintertime and it was kind of cold, uh, and she was never seen again. Uh, Search party was brought in, uh, helicopters, uh, people combing the trails. She was never found, uh, and people started speculating that because this area was known for Bigfoot activity and Bigfoot sightings, that a Bigfoot had carted her off.
1: Hmm and uh i'm wondering the uh, the david Politis, uh collection of books on on uh, missing 411 all these people that go missing from na- national parks and so forth he's never come out and said you know that he that it's bigfoot but what are your thoughts on that so many people go missing in in national parks in throughout north america uh and this story about this reporter who vanished just kind of reminded me of that
2: well, I, <clears throat> I, I, I do think that that is a reasonable possibility. We've had uh, accounts of Bigfoot kidnappings uh, going back uh, quite a ways in time from people who have come back to tell about it. So certainly there might be cases where people are abducted and they don't come back. Uh, and uh, it could be uh, not just Bigfoot, uh, there could be other creatures that could um, abscond with people it might be dogmen it might be aliens but um, I, I think that it's a possible explanation I, I don't think that uh, so many people vanish for no reason at all
1: tell me a little bit about uh, Bigfoot hunter John Green
2: well John Green was a Canadian and he was one of the most respected uh, Bigfoot um Researchers and he collected over 3,000 cases uh, in the course of his life, uh, and that reminds me. I do want to get back to uh, Ray Wallace too before we wrap up the show. And um, you know, he was of the opinion that Bigfoot was real, and um, he when uh, when he was interviewed for Fate magazine, uh, he was hopeful that we would have conclusive evidence. Uh, within the next few decades, but um, he's passed away now, and we still don't have conclusive evidence. But uh, he collected a lot of casts of uh, he examined a lot of plaster casts of, of uh, big big feet,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, and he was known as Mr. Bigfoot. Um, and I know we're kind of short on time here. I just wanted to mention Ray Wallace, yes. who I met at, at the beginning. As uh, some people say, he's the guy who started it all. Well, Ray Wallace wound up being quite a hoaxer. And uh, here again, we have very blurry lines about what's real and what's not. Um, Did Ray Wallace hoax the initial Bigfoot prints, or did he just start hoaxing after um, Bigfoot mania started? Um, He confessed later on in his life that he had dozens of pairs of... uh, big footprints that he would go out and leave in the wilderness to trick uh, researchers, um, that he had um, costumes made, big hairy uh, ape-like costumes made, uh, and he seemed to be quite proud of that. But did, uh, did a genuine phenomenon start? Was, was the phenomenon originally genuine? And he just jumped in and decided to mix it up a bit. Um, we find this a lot in the paranormal where uh, researchers are on both sides of the fence. They're part of something that seems to be real, and then they're part of uh, trickery on the other side.
1: Right, we saw that with crop circles.
2: It certainly did.
1: How do folks get a copy of Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot?
2: It's available now on Amazon. In print, the ebook is coming. That's the best place to get it.
1: Well, congratulations. Uh, What's coming up next from Fate Presents? Do we know?
2: Uh, I haven't decided yet. Um, I'm looking at another UFO collection, maybe ancient aliens and astronauts or um, conspiracies. Um, So much material because Fate devoted more attention to UFOs than any other topic.
1: Well, just keep them coming. These are fantastic, this whole series of Fate Presents. Rosemary, always a delight. We'll talk next month. Thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com Eternal be her memory. So long, Rosemary. I'll miss you. Okay, that's it for me. My thanks to Owen and Ryan. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.